At the time, the Guinness Book of World Records dubbed it the largest illusion ever pulled off. The year was 1983. The place, New York City. The man was the clean-cut, brown-eyed 26-year-old David Copperfield. Copperfield was already an established magician by then. He had made a car disappear. He had made a jet airline disappear. But now he was going to top it all. He told a story of how he, a seven-year-old saw him in New York City and recognized him. Uh, and they were both looking out off to the shore of New York City. And there was the Statue of Liberty. They were looking together. And then they looked back at one another. And apparently the seven-year-old said to him, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> Copperfield wanted to make the Statue of Liberty disappear on live television. Well, the TV special began with the narrator calling it the illusion of the century. And the first thing we see as the TV special begins are helicopters flying in the air, encircling Lady Liberty, closing up on her crown and on her torch. And then another lady comes in and assures us that what we are seeing is actually what's taking place. There are no camera tricks. This is one continuous shot. What the TV audience is seeing is what the live audience is seeing. Well, then we get the build up to the trick. You set it up. We see two big scaffolding towers and a group of people sitting in between them and Lady Liberty in between the towers. And so the curtain rises up between the scaffolding towers, blocking the sight of Lady Liberty. And then David Copperfield, you know, puts his two fingers to his temple and acts like he's doing something with his mind. <laughs> and then he lowers the curtain and poof, abracadabra, Lady Liberty's gone, disappeared. And then the helicopters we see are flying around over empty space. And the people there are stunned. We cut to audience reaction, and then they interview a couple audience members. One lady says, I've never seen a Statue of Liberty disappear like I saw this one. <laughs> well, you've heard that a good magician never reveals his secrets, and Copperfield is no exception. In the age of the internet, it's a lot harder to do that, because it's easy to find out secrets. But Copperfield's one step ahead. He hires people to put out fake secrets on the internet. <laughs> muddy the waters a little bit. Well, one journalist from the radio program, This American Life, did some digging and interviewed people involved with the production of the trick. And the basic explanation, the secret, now if you don't want to hear it, you just you close your ears at this point. <laughs> um, the secret is that instead of moving the statue, Copperfield moved the people. So, the audience and the scaffolding towers were on a giant rotating platform so that while the curtain was up, it was slowly turning. Now, this, to take, this is a risk, too, because it's got to turn fast enough that it's, it's quick, and it's got to turn slow enough so that nobody notices. They were on this giant rotating platform so that by the time it was done and the curtain falls, one scaffolding tower was blocking the sight of Lady Liberty, and they couldn't see it. So they saw nothing. And so there's, there's speculation that some of the audience members were paid off, um, not quite proven. But nonetheless, Copperfield pretty much convinced everybody watching on TV that he made the Statue of Liberty disappear.
Today, we're reading the passage of Jesus walking on the water, and it is just like the David Copperfield story. Okay, before you panic, it's not like it in every way. What would you, what's the first thing, what's the first way we respond to seeing a trick like David Copperfield's? The most natural thing you would ask is, how did you do that? When we read something like Jesus walking in the water, that might be the most natural question to ask. How did he do that? Well, friends, that's a natural question. It's a reasonable one. It's not wrong to ask. But we have to pursue that question in the right way. Jesus' act of walking on the water is presented as so stunning and so without a doubt genuine that our wonder of how he did it is meant to lead us to investigate who it shows him to be and why he would do something like that in the first place. So, Jesus walking on the water. It comes in Mark chapter 6, part of our continual study in Mark. You'll find it uh, beginning in verse 45 and on page 842 in the Pew Bible. Mark 6, we're going to read verses 45 to 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone in the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Well, friends, what Jesus does here is remarkable, unbelievable, astonishing, whatever other amazing adjective you want to use. Friends, isn't the evidence mounting by now? Jesus doing these kinds of things wasn't just a one-time isolated event where all the circumstances had to be set up just right. No, Jesus keeps doing these things again and again. And it should be, therefore, more established again and again that this is, in fact, the Son of God, and the Son of God who has come to rescue his people. Well, just like much of the Gospel of Mark, and all of the Gospels for that matter, this event leaves us to grapple with who Jesus is, why he came to us, and how we should respond to him. 
Well, looking at Jesus uh, walking on the water and another summary statement of his healing ministry, I think we can put forward this main point from the whole thing. And it comes in two parts. Take heart. The Son of God stepped in our mess and saves us from it. Take heed. It's possible to hear this and not believe it. Take heart. The Son of God stepped into our mess and saves us from it. Take heed. It's possible to hear of this and not believe in it. Throughout this passage, we see again that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, taken on flesh, and that the proper response to him is unabashed, full-fledged faith. Well, to give you a bit of a running start, especially for those of you who were snowed in last week and did not hear the sermon from last week, uh, this sermon today of Jesus walking on the water, one of Jesus' most famous miracles, comes on the heels of another one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. And like we noticed last week, it was likely not 5,000 because it was just 5,000 men. It didn't include women and children, so this would have been more like 20,000 people. Well, we noticed last week that the feeding of the 5,000 showed two different things, at least, about Jesus. It showed uh, his compassion, and it showed his sufficiency, that he is able to make good on his compassion. And he proves both of those things to two groups of people. He proves his compassion to his disciples, and he proves it to the crowd. He proves it to the disciples by calling them to come and rest. We zoom out on chapter 6, and we saw earlier that he called them to work. So taken as a whole, we see this balance, this balance out of compassion between work and rest. We considered, how does the gospel show us that balance? How we rest, stop, stop working for our salvation and trust Jesus enough to rest in him. And from that rest, we work. So he proves his compassion to his disciples. He also proved his compassion to the crowds. He sees they're shepherdless. They don't have anyone to lead them or to feed them. So what does he do? He feeds them. But he does something surprising. He first fed them by teaching with spiritual food. And then he fed them with physical food. So from those priorities and from that order, we dwelled on, well, how does that impact us for our ministry? Basing first on and taking priority in spiritual feeding, the preaching of the gospel. But we show that we believe what we preach when we act on it, when we do good deeds. So we notice how preaching and doing mesh together. Well, then it shows Jesus' sufficiency to act on his compassion. And again, he proves it to the two groups. He proves it to the disciples. He tells the disciples, you see all, the, you see all these people? You bring the problem to me. You say we got to go, let them go to feed them. Well, why don't you feed them? Well, the disciples respond to Jesus first by looking to themselves and seeing an obstacle. They can't do that. They are physically unable. They are insufficient for it. Instead, they should have looked at who was right in front of them, Jesus. See that he is sufficient for it. And Jesus would prove his sufficiency to them. And then to the crowds. The crowds are hungry. That's pretty much the only qualification for them to be there. And you know, verse 42, chapter 6 says, They all ate and they all were satisfied. So Jesus proves his sufficiency 
to feed and satisfy hunger to these crowds. And he does the same with us. Although we might not feel physically hungry as much as these crowds did, each of us are spiritually hungry. Each of us need purpose that can only be given by the Lord himself. So that was the feeding of the 5,000. That's the basic synopsis of it. Uh, if you want to hear more, the sermon's available on CD or online, uh, or you can just ask me questions afterward. I'd love to talk to you about it. But today, this miracle comes right after the feeding of the 5,000. And when we pick up in verse 45, we find Jesus' banquet is dying down, and we find the beginning of a movement to another place. And so we're just going to organize our time today by following where Jesus goes. Uh, so first we see Jesus on his own, then we see Jesus on the sea, and finally we'll see Jesus in the cities. He was also in the villages and the countryside. So this whole time, wherever we follow Jesus throughout his journey, we'll keep in mind who he is, why he's come, and the proper response to him. All right, sounds good? So where does Jesus start? Jesus on his own. How do you get people to leave a party? <laughs> if you're at a restaurant, or maybe you're at a dinner party at a restaurant, and the conversation's winding down, but you haven't left yet, a good strategy I often use is you just be the first person who gets up. And usually everybody else gets up. Or maybe if you're at a party and you're stuck in a conversation, you could be like Jerry and Elaine from Seinfeld and have a secret signal about uh, coming to rescue you, like patting on your head. Well, the beginning of our story today deals with the end of the story from last week. Again, Jesus fed the crowd of likely 20,000 people, and now he finds some way to end this massive picnic banquet in verse 45, he tells his disciples to get going, and they're going off to Bethsaida. It's a reminder, so the feeding likely took place uh, around Bethsaida, more precisely on a hillside to the west of Bethsaida, and now, they're sending that, now he's sending them across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to the actual town of Bethsaida. Uh, that's confusing. Uh, try to find a map in the back of the Bible. Um, so he sends the disciples away while he took care of the crowd. So why would Jesus want to end this? Is he just not, you know, a very extroverted guy? Doesn't really like parties? Well, think about this for a second. Think about what's going on. This giant group of people just witnessed one man feed all of them from five loaves and two fish. And think about who these people are. These are people who have struggled under the Roman Empire and under Roman oppression. So if Jesus' own disciples, who were with him all the time, had a hard time understanding who he is, how much more would these crowds of people have a hard time understanding who he is and the purpose of what he's, what he's come to do? They could have easily seen Jesus was the perfect candidate to be the long-awaited Messiah King that would overthrow Roman rule and reclaim Israel's independence. Now, before a grassroots rebellion and uprising could take form, and 20,000 people would be a formidable force, Jesus dismissed both his disciples and the crowd. The book of John, describing the same event in chapter 6, 
verse 15. Uh, it says that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So remember, this shows us something about Jesus' mission, about why he came to us in the first place. Jesus' mission to bring in God's kingdom in a world fallen to sin, it begins first by him dying as a ransom for people enslaved to sin so that they may enter that kingdom. If he comes to establish it right away, the second part, without bringing people into it, it's kind of pointless. To do it right, he has to go through this first part. He comes first as a suffering servant, not as a freedom fighter. Later, he will come as the conquering king. Now, Mark largely leaves out these kinds of details and focuses on that Jesus was alone and able to pray. But if we keep in mind that Jesus noticed what John described in John 6, then Jesus must have known the importance of seeking his father's face during a time when he felt pressure to compromise his mission. He knew the importance of prayer at this time. So already in Mark, we've seen this. Already in Mark, we've seen Jesus getting away alone to pray. But again, I think it's worth dwelling on for a second what it means to follow the one who does this. What it means to follow the one who knows prayer is this important. At the most basic level for us, it means that we create space to have this time like Jesus did. Now listen, we're all busy. You ask how people are, it's either good or it's either busy. But friend, we're not Jesus busy. I don't know about you, like the evidence isn't here today, but wherever you go, I would guess, now you could correct me if I'm wrong, that 20,000 people just don't show up. This is what Jesus dealt with time and time again. And yet, and yet, he could still create space and time to get alone with his father and pray. So people talk about the importance of me time to recharge, and that's okay. But I think reading here, Jesus shows himself to be more concerned with prayer time than me time. Or maybe we could put it better even. Jesus's me time was primarily prayer time. So that, I'm not saying that um, when you're alone, the only thing you're allowed to do is pray. Um, but Jesus was this convinced of prayer's importance. And we have to ask ourselves, are we as convinced as him? I mean, really. Maybe thinking of it this way can help, can help, can help convince ourselves. When is the most natural time that we pray? Now, I'm not talking about before meals. The most natural time we pray is when we feel like we have a desperate need and the only place we know to go is the Lord. That's when it's most natural. So maybe then, friends, just maybe, one of the secrets to a constant prayer life is not just love for the Lord, but also being convinced that we are desperately dependent on him, not just sometimes, but all of the time. 
And I'm not talking about that we should create problems that aren't there, but I am saying we should take seriously our sin and our weakness and God's all-sufficient strength and joy. When we feel dependent on the Lord all of the time, then we'll be convinced of the importance of prayer. Well, knowing its importance, we should, like Jesus, create space and time specifically for that task. Now, I want to, maybe we, have, we can help one another do that, because it could be harder than it seems. Jesus was able to step away from the things that would keep him from this task, from spending time with his Father. But maybe it's hard for you to step away from things that would keep you from it. So maybe we can help one another. Maybe we can shoulder the load and bear burdens of our church family so that they'd be freed up to spend time alone with the Lord. Maybe that's babysitting. Maybe that's filling in a responsibility around the church. My dad's going to preach for me in a couple weeks. Amen. (laughs) Maybe that's noticing when someone seems tired and asking how you can help and not taking no for an answer. Maybe if you feel overwhelmed, it means coming out of your shell and asking for help. We can help one another with this because it is vitally important that, like Jesus, we create space to pray. Well, this isn't part of the main, this isn't the main part of the passage yet. We're building up to it. Jesus is alone. He prays, and then he sees something. He sees his disciples trying to cross the sea in a boat. And some wonder, well, like, isn't it nighttime? How can he see that? Well, I mean, we can give a natural explanation. Maybe if the big meal was over by early evening, would have made preparations in the late afternoon, then the disciples would have gotten started before it was dark, and Jesus was probably up on a mountain, so he would have a better vantage point to see out on the lake and see his disciples. Or we could just say, Jesus is the Son of God, and he knew where his disciples were. I don't, Mark isn't really concerned of how he saw them. He's concerned with just saying he saw them. And he saw that they were in trouble. It was a massive windstorm. So if, if you don't know the Sea of Galilee, uh, it's 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains. So it's just a natural wind tunnel. And you've got to keep in mind, too, who Jesus' disciples are. I mean, these are guys who grew up on the Sea of Galilee. Like, they were fishermen. They knew these these kinds of storms. But this was like none other. They couldn't prevail against this storm, and Jesus sees that, and he does something. So our time is just following where Jesus is going. Follow next to Jesus on the sea. The next part. So look with me at the middle of verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So Jesus saw his disciples in distress, and what did he do? He came to them. How did he come to them? He walked on the water. And what does that mean? Friends, it means exactly what it says it means. 
he walked on the water. And a lot of people try to translate this in a different way. But you can't translate on to mean anything else. Further, if you do that, the whole story loses its point. Well, to many, Jesus walking on the water is just another account that's exaggerated. It's not representative of who Jesus is actually historically. To people who are committed to rationalism and naturalism, they treat this story and others as codes to be cracked. There has to be some explanation behind it, they think. Because like you and me, they've been in the water and they don't stand, they sink. So it must have been an optical illusion, they say. Jesus just looked like he was walking on the water, but really he was walking near the shore. Or really he was walking on a sandbar that went out into the water. No, 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 friends, this, that was not the case. Jesus actually walked on the water. So it's a chance to remind ourselves, briefly, that we don't have to be embarrassed or shy away from the miracles that the Bible presents. Now, miracles, people define it in a lot of different ways. The Bible also calls them mighty deeds. The best definition I've read comes from theologian John Frame. Uh, he says, miracles are extraordinary displays of God's covenant lordship. Extraordinary displays of God's covenant lordship. So often people think of miracles like breaking the laws of nature. Well, it's not always the case in the Bible. Sometimes it's just an incredible display of the laws of nature, still a miracle. It displays something about God, something about his authority, his presence, his control over everything. And friends, we should take the Bible's miracles at face value because the Bible presents itself as an historical book. I'm getting a spam phone call. I apologize. <laughs> the Bible authors write to tell us not just wisdom principles, but things that actually happened. Take the resurrection, for example. The resurrection is not just a principle. It's if the resurrection did not actually happen, actually happen in history, then Paul says our faith is useless and we are still in our sin. So to those who would question the Bible's miracles and not take them at face value, we claim like these actually happened in his history. And that's what the Bible presents. And if they didn't, then we're still in our sins. And so we also, in light of the resurrection, we say, if Jesus rose from the dead, his, in, actually, in history, then why not walk on water? Is it that much harder? Well, to those who say that the Bible authors claim certain events as miraculous just because they had no other explanation, well, that doesn't hold too much water either. You can't say that the disciples thought Jesus walked on the water because they were ignorant of modern science. Friends, you don't need modern science to know that people can't walk on water. Just like you don't need modern science to know people don't rise from the dead. Well, if you assume just outright that miracles can't take place, then you assume that no person who has ever existed has experienced one. That's a big assumption. And maybe you assume that even if a person claims to have experienced one, no witness can be credible. I challenge that as well. I think that's unfair. You take the apostles, for example. Witnesses of the resurrected Lord. 
What did they have to gain about reporting that? About all of them reporting that? They had to gain, they held on that Jesus rose from the dead until the point of death. They literally died for that. And if it didn't actually happen, why keep claiming it? No, friends, they were convinced that Jesus actually did this. And beyond all of it, to those who say outright that miracles aren't possible, well, they assume that it is impersonal forces that govern our universe, but it's not. The force is personal. It is God himself. God determines what's possible, not impersonal forces of nature. So yes, God has a regular way of functioning, regular way in which he proceeds. But again, as John Frame says, God's higher intention is to redeem a people for himself. And to do that, it is appropriate for him to perform unusual works in order to accomplish our salvation, in order to apply it, in order to attest to it. So in other words, friends, at the end of the matter, to those who say something like walking on the water just isn't possible, well, friends, if there aren't miracles, then we're doomed. That's the point. Well, that's a long excursus on the simple words, walking on the sea. But we shouldn't brush past them too quickly because this is what it says to be, and there are good reasons to believe it. Well, back to the action. Jesus decides to come to the disciples in the middle of the night, says, uh, the fourth watch, which would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., this is how the Romans told time, could show this is Mark's audience. He, came, he comes to the disciples in the middle of the night, and kind of strangely, Mark says that Jesus meant to pass them by. And it wasn't until the disciples cried out to him that Jesus came into the boat. So which one is it? Did Jesus come to rescue them, or did he just go out to take a stroll on the sea? Well, I think the answer is both. Uh, it's helpful when you know how God has previously shown his glory in the Bible. Uh, so at Mount Sinai with Moses, the Lord passed him by in order to reveal his name and his compassion. At Mount Horeb, we read of it a couple, a couple of weeks ago, 1 Kings 19. The Lord revealed his presence by passing by Elijah. And the most important example, I think, for this story is Job 9. And there it, re it reads, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. So there, Job is showing this mighty chasm between God and humanity, that humanity cannot do the things that God does. They cannot move mountains. They cannot shake the earth. They cannot tread on waves of the sea. And here's Jesus, treading on the sea, passing by his disciples. But unlike God and Job, the disciples see Jesus the manifestation of what only God can do in the flesh. So Jesus here shows that he is God and he is God in the flesh who has come to rescue his people. And even if Mark's readers didn't understand at first, he, came to pass, he meant to pass them by. There would be no misunderstanding that this is just another display that Jesus is the Lord of creation. So here's Jesus 
walking on the water. And the disciples get to see it. Get to see this action proving that Jesus is equal with the Father. And how do they respond? They're terrified. Now, there's going to be some blame heading toward the disciples' way in just a minute. But for now, we should try to empathize a little bit. Um, It's the middle of the night. They're in an awful storm, already on edge. And they see someone walking on the water. Have you ever seen someone walking on the water? Okay, me neither. And it wasn't just that they maybe saw something. They all saw something. They definitely saw something. And it was more than just checking their closet to see if there was a monster. No, the monster was out and heading toward their their direction. And so since Jesus has to clarify that it's him, it's clear that they didn't recognize him. They didn't think it was him. They thought it was an it. So they thought it was a ghost. They screamed and they were afraid. Most of the disciples had been on this lake all of their lives. They were used to being on this water, but nothing like this had ever happened. And so what happens next? Jesus tries to calm them down. He got in the boat and he calmed the wind down. And the disciples still didn't quite get it. Seeing Jesus come to them walking on the water should have made the disciples do two things. Take heart and take heed. When we are terrified, anxious, uneasy, what can calm us down in those moments? I think a lot of different things. But a couple that come right from this story. That give us immediate peace and calm when we are terrified, anxious, uneasy. First is when we discover that what we fear isn't real or isn't what we thought it was. I've used this example before, but it's like in 1938 when there was a radio broadcast of the War of the Worlds, and, people didn't, and they didn't tell the people that it was from a book, and people actually thought aliens were invading the Earth, and they panicked. And then they found out what they feared isn't actually real. So that happens here. But we also get immediate peace and calm when we find that someone is with us who is stronger than what we fear. So it's like jumping into the pool that you're scared of because your dad is there holding out his arms. When then your dad fails to keep that trust by letting you fall into the pool. (laughs) Well, both of these reasons work for the disciples uh, in this situation. What they feared isn't what they thought it was. And better still, the one who was with them was actually stronger than anything they feared. So is it appropriate that we should take heart at the coming of Jesus to us in the same way that the disciples do here? Absolutely, friends. I think it is. Reading this passage this week, one phrase that just kind of hopped out at me was he saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw that they were making headway painfully. I couldn't help but think that this reflects the story of humanity in general. Most of our culture assume that uh, humans are always progressing. After all, just look at the advances in the fields like uh, medicine and science. I mean, certainly the society that came up with the polio vaccination and the iPhone 
has also made advances in meaning and in ethics. No, that's not the case. So people assume that we are always progressing. Thus, they assume that what is old is always inferior to the new. So people view Christianity as dated, antiquated, irrelevant, and out of touch. And so sure, we can concede some things have gotten better. Take slavery and segregation. But we could still push back on that. In the grand scope of history, what looks like progress is often just recovery. People have freed slaves thousands of years ago. The problem of racial prejudice is honestly a new problem. It's not something that's always been around. What looks like progress is often just recovery. And further, with all the supposed progress or recovery, there is just as much, if not more, regression and forgetfulness. This is the story of humanity. In other words, friends, we aren't getting kinder and kinder and more humane and more humane. No, we're, we're going in the opposite direction of that. Just look at the state of our political discourse. Just look at the state of New York passing what they passed this week. This is the story of humanity that the Bible tells. It tells the story of humanity who continually disobeys God, runs away from him, does what is right in their own eyes, and gives glory that belongs to God alone to lesser things. It's a story of people who are making headway painfully because they're in a storm of their own making. A storm that keeps them separated from the God who made them. But just as Jesus saw his disciples in that storm, so does he see all of humanity in that storm. And he came to us, just like he came to them, at the perfect time. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So friends, we take heart. The Son of God came to save his disciples on that faithful night. Is the same Son of God who came to save all those who would repent of their sins and place their trust in him alone. We can take heart because he has come to rescue and we don't have to fear because he has come to stay with us. This is the one who has taken all of our guilt and punishment that we deserve. We don't need to fear judgment anymore. This is the one who has overcome the world. We don't have to fear its threats anymore. This is the one who has dealt Satan his death blow. We don't have to fear his schemes anymore. There is nothing stronger than the Lord, and there is nothing that can cause him to break his promise. Do not fear. Take heart. And it doesn't mean we don't cry out. It doesn't mean we don't feel threats. It means that when we do, We remember Emmanuel, God with us. So take heart. Do not be afraid. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do. And that's what they seem to do. It says they were astounded. And usually that word doesn't contain in it any kind of fear, but genuine amazement. The wind was gone. Why would they be afraid? At this point, when Matthew's telling the story in chapter 14 of Matthew, he comments that they, the disciples called Jesus the Son of God. When we read the Gospels, there are other places that the disciples called Jesus this. 
but we also know they always don't mean, they always don't know what they are saying. They don't know the full ramifications of Jesus being the Son of God. So I think Mark comments in verse 52 about their lack of understanding and their hardness of heart because he's showing an attitude that's been in the disciples for a really long time now and an attitude that's going to continue in the disciples for a little bit longer. The point is they should have reacted in being astounded way before this moment. They should have reacted this way when the evening and afternoon earlier that Jesus fed the 20,000 people from a plate of food. They should have reacted this way when they saw Jesus do the exact same thing he did here by calming a storm back in chapter 4. So friends, I think this is a warning for us to take heed. That we can be very familiar with Jesus. We can know some true things about him. We can say good things about him. And in the case of the disciples, even see him do amazing things. That can be true of us. We can experience all of that. And we still don't have full-fledged faith. Friends, it's a reminder. Take heed because faith doesn't just happen by hearing about Jesus. Faith doesn't automatically happen when you read the Bible or hear a sermon. Faith doesn't automatically happen when you come to church years after years after years. Friends, we all, um, it's not guaranteed that we will have faith. God must give it. So we always try to encourage people to ask good questions, um, seek answers to those questions. At some point, though, some point you have to ask yourself if your continual delaying is because you actually deny Jesus is who he says he is at some point you have to stop delaying and make a decision at some point well in the disciples hardness of hearts there is mainly a warning but real quickly I think there's also an encouragement the encouragement is that God is patient and God can change any heart. How can we look at the disciples' stories and not realize that? You look at their whole story, the disciples' foibles and failures only serve to show the power of God's redeeming grace. Can you believe that God chose these guys to be like the start of his church? And so there is hope for us stubborn people yet. Hope that the one who walked on the water and rose from the dead can change any heart. So in all our delaying and all our stubbornness, God is patient. But friends, remember to take heed because God's patience is meant to bring us to repentance. All right, real quickly, the last movement of Jesus. Very quickly, this is the last point. Jesus in the cities. There's a group of verses that comes at the end of chapter 6, and it's another movement of Jesus. It seems that the heavy winds blew Jesus and the disciples uh, southwest toward Gennesaret. And these verses present us a familiar summary that we've seen before. People mob Jesus wherever he goes, and Jesus heals scores of people. So from these verses, again, I think we can take heed. 
while Jesus is compassionate and shows solidarity with the suffering of people, the people come to Jesus only as a healer and not as the Savior. One commentator says this, in the zeal with which the people brought their sick to Jesus, we recognize not only how deeply the untiring goodness of Jesus touched Israel, but also we see how distant Israel remained from Jesus because it sought from him nothing but the healing of his sick. So for us, we need to be warned that we seek Jesus not for the things that he gives us, but for Jesus himself. But again, friends, I think we could take heart. Summaries like this at the ending of Mark 6 um, remind us that what's recorded in the Gospels is not all that Jesus did. His miracles were not rare occurrences that needed to have all, everything right in place for them to happen. No, Jesus went around doing this. So, looking at the passage as a whole, See, Jesus walked on water, and Jesus heals, like, anybody who touches him. And then we look at the end of the story, the crucifixion, Jesus' death. And I don't know if, on, if just seeing that on our own, if those things necessarily line up. Because certainly, the guy who could calm a storm could handle defending himself. Certainly, the guy who could literally heal people with a touch could gain popularity and notoriety so that people would not hate him but love him. But then we see Jesus' death, his crucifixion. So it must mean his death didn't come because he was weak, didn't come because he was unable to protect himself. No, it came because he laid down his life voluntarily. It came because this was his mission. To come to his people when he sees them in distress and to give his life as a ransom for many. So knowing that mission, knowing who he is, we take hearts. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us here. Lord Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. Would you help us to see you as you really are? Would you continue to transform our hearts, remove our stubbornness, and have confidence in you? Will we take heart, knowing that you have done this? Will we take heed and take seriously that we must respond in faith? Lord God, thank you for being with us still and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.